Our reading today comes from James chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. You can follow along in your, in your Bible or it's in the bulletin as well. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, as we finish up our sermon series in the book of James these next two weeks, for those of you who have been with us, we can remember that James has told us some difficult things we should expect in this world. Among them, oppression and poverty favoritism and failure of relationships and even abandonment by those who should love us. And James subsequently urges believers to be aggressive with the sin and problem they see going on in our world and possibly in them to do justice and to live out the faith, to act, to follow God's active charge against classism and racism and oppression and poverty. But what happens when you've done and doing all and what you can? What happens when you are the one, like most of the original recipients of, of James's letter, who, what if you're the one who is on the bottom under the oppression and abusive weight of someone else or some besetting sin or institutional racism or sexism or classism? What if you find and feel yourself powerless at a certain point or, or no match or at the end of yourself in any of these circumstances or more? up against the stops and yields and, and traffic jams of, of hard circumstance and suffering, God calls us to not only an actively aggressive faith in this world, but what I would describe as a passive aggressive faith. A faith that must wait. A faith that must stand there. A faith that must stay in the middle of it, in the thick of it, in the lack of our immediate control over it. Wait, stand, and stay. I don't know about you, but if there's one thing I hate, it's waiting. Are you saying amen because you know me, or you, you like that too? Okay. 
Both. Okay. <laughs> waiting. Waiting for the light to change. I remember one time I was so impatient. The light had changed. There was a car in front of me turning right. And I laid on my horn. Ah, come on, get through the light. And as soon as I laid on my horn and started fussing, I saw a lady crossing in the wheelchair. And the driver was waiting for her to just pass. She should have been moving quicker. No. Waiting. Waiting, right? Waiting for the line at the local fat burger or chicken fast food place. You know, I, I won't even go to Carowinds, with Carowinds anymore without a fight. I'm too old because I have to wait in those lines. The ride is not worth the wait and then almost $60 to stand around and wait most of the day, right? W waiting, waiting for my family to get ready and come on once I am ready to go. Waiting for dinner at home, waiting for an online movie or file a song to download, waiting for the two-day Amazon Prime package to get there. And while these are pretty common examples of impatience, the people James, the people he's addressing, like some of you, are waiting, not though in their leather car seats and air conditioned for the light to change, or standing in a hundred dollar running shoes in amusement park ride line. No, they are waiting in their suffering. Waiting in the boil, right? right? Waiting for life to come and happen. Waiting to not feel subhuman. Waiting to get equal wages and treatment. Waiting for the abuse that they can't stop to stop. Waiting for that change to come. And James uses this example in verse 7 of waiting. It says, be patient, Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. A couple things I want to bring to your attention about James' example about the farmer. The farmer has done all he or she has been called to do. They can do nothing else. And as the farmer waits, not only for the vegetation or fruit to grow, but for the rain to make it grow, it is clear that the farmer can't buy what he needs to get things to happen. He can't strong arm to get what he wants or needs. He must wait for someone up there, out there, to turn the heavenly faucets on. But guess what? Something is happening. But the farmer can't see or control, drive, or push it. I don't know what you're waiting in need of right now. I don't know how long that weight has been on your back or that issue in your family. I don't know how hard it has been for what you're going through or how deep and long and wide you've been going through it as you wait for the fruit, the blessing, the help, the filling, the healing, the relief of the Lord. Let me let you know that you are not waiting in the middle of nothing. We're not being called by James to be patient and wait for the work of the Lord, but to wait as God works. 
What you long for, need for in redemptive change and freedom is in the works. It is in process. You and I just can't see it or get it right now. God is at work, divinely germinating and, and bringing out and eventually up what should come in the right time. And like the farmer, we keep watch and hope. But, but look, it says the farmer is patient about it. She doesn't start digging and fretting and stomping on the ground and trying to manipulate the soil or dig it up and start planting something easier or stops trying to be a farmer. They wait. Like a person, like a believer who knows under the ground, somewhere where they can't see, as long as the rains come, something is happening. Something is moving. In your marriages and relationships or lack of relationships and families and friendships, you see no change. The place, the ground of that relationship looks the same. Seems like you'll go on hungry for affection and commitment and fulfillment one more day, one more year. Good news, though. God is at work. In your job and financial situation, whatever it may be, you see another fruitless interview or paycheck or opportunity. God is at work. In your world, man, just turn on the news, all the mess, no change in women's rights, girls kidnapped and forced marriages, and human trafficking, and the continuing lingering thought and reality that maybe your life doesn't matter as much as other lives, and the lack of water in California and farming families going bankrupt, and the price of good food getting further and further out of the affordable reach of the poor that keep getting poorer. Wait for it, because God, even in all that confusion is at work. But how long? How long is the growing season? When should we expect stuff to finally happen? Man, I, I know a bunch of pastors and preachers that will tell you that date. And they'll tell you that if it don't happen in a certain time, something is wrong with you. But that's not what the Word says. Look at what James says here to the beginning of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. <laughs> if you're like me, you're not going to like what that means. Because James is expecting something to change and God to emerge and reveal with real change for our lives. But look at the time for us waiting on it that he puts on it. Until the coming of the Lord. How long should we faithfully wait for God to act? When should we say, is enough enough, Lord? I'm tired of waiting. I give up. When is that time up okay we can all get happy knowing that jesus second coming means the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth but it also means that we are called to wait until the end of life itself we are called to wait 
and be patient in this passage, right? For, for the change for the rest of our lives, regardless of what we see in our lifetimes, right? I mean, think about it. James and, and his church are waiting until Jesus comes back. And now, guess what? As we look at the scripture, we know they've all already died and we're waiting until they died. And Jesus is still not back almost 2,000 years later. Therefore, I want you to recognize that we must wait, not only as God works for what we long for in this world in our lives, but we are actually waiting ultimately for God to finish his complete work and plan. That is what this passage is talking about. See, what, what James is teaching us is that our finite lives on earth and our temporary, though lifelong circumstances of suffering are wrapped up. They're, they're tied into that divine and ultimate plan and fixed by God. So I want you to please listen. This is a difficult one that... We Christians don't hear a lot. You see, this fruit illustration can be tricky if we're not honest with it, right? Because how many different kind of fruit, right, fruits come up on one vine or one tree? So you plant your apple tree in the backyard, how many different kind of fruit come on it? One! Right? You plant a certain thing and then the fruit comes up. How many? Three, four, a million? Right? No. One kind of fruit comes up on a tree. Right? One kind, one type, not a million different kinds. So guess what James is saying here? Now, let, let me be honest with you. Fruitfulness and fruition and what comes out in our lives are different in different passages. But James is teaching us something else about what it means to wait in our Christian lives. There is only one fruit of God in this passage for the million circumstances and issues we hope to see resolved. See, in this passage, God's plan, God's final plan, fruit, one fruit, is the second coming of Jesus, right? So we are waiting until the second coming of Jesus to ultimately fix all that is wrong and gone wrong. Y'all excited about that? Sort of. But the fruit is not the only thing the farmer is watching on, right? James talks about the early and late rains, which is different than the fruit. But let me tell you what the early and late rains do. They keep the hope of the fruit alive and assured that it is coming. Let me get to this. God rains down grace and temporary relief and healing and assurance that he is still God and there and working for our circumstances with real changes that we experience, though they are not the ultimate and final change change believers should be looking for. So yes, God can rain down a better marriage. Sure, God can rain down in the seasons of life a better financial situation and a better job and housing and treatment and justice on earth is real rain that we wait for and it is really God at work that we are patient in. But nothing is ultimately and completely and finally.
finally and fairly healed or dealt with. And so we wait for change, right? We wait for the reign of God's power and mercy and help. We wait as God works, but we also wait with looking forward in perspective of God's final plan to fix it in us for all times as he breaks through the sky as a revealed redeemer, all the earth bowed to him, conquering hero and king of kings and lord of lords. That the rain you experience is fueling, it's feeding, it's nourishing the final and complete change. But not only is James calling us to wait, he's calling us to stand. Stand on what God has said and promised. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10 with me. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, people of suffering and patience, brothers, take Sorry, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Okay, so patience means waiting in verse 7. And in verse 8, patience calls us to be established, to stand. And this time we don't get an example of a farmer, but in verse 10 of an Old Testament prophet from the Bible. What does this mean? The prophets were the voice of God for God's people. They were the walking Bibles, right? They were the ones who held the truth of God. Well, these prophets would prophesy about things that would look like and be like nothing actually going on or possibly true at the time they said it. And it didn't match all the time. Prophet would say one thing, something else would be going in the world. Prophet would say God's doing this, and God wouldn't look like he's doing it, right? Sometimes they would say things that would take forever to actually happen, but more than that, people and circumstances would not change. And sometimes for years, it would look like the prophet or God was lying or wrong. Sometimes things would get worse, much worse before they got better or right. And the prophet would have to stand in that kind of environment. And by stand, I mean obey. To act on, to follow, to believe beyond belief, to, to act like you're ready for something to happen, even though it doesn't look like it's happening. To live with expectation for, to act and live like it was true, like God's word was true, even though everything else around it said that it wasn't. James is telling us to keep obeying the word of God, to keep living according to what has been revealed to you. And James is saying this at a time when people are acting like real jerks and the world is being real mean and unjust and things are just not fair when it comes to why I don't have and they have and why my life has to be this way and they're getting away with all sorts of things because they are rich and powerful. And so the temptation and the frustration, unlike a prophet, is to say what you feel and what you want against what God's word is actually saying. It gets so tough. Forget all this. Forget all this forgiveness and love and waiting on the Lord until he comes back stuff. I'm going to get mine. 
what the Word of God is saying? It's really saying that He wants us to be happy down here all the time. We'll actually take the Word of God when things get tough, and we will shoplift words like love from the one who defines it and use it against God. We'll take the word of God and say, this ain't God because the God of love wouldn't do this. Why? Because things too hard. They're too tough. And so we we, we don't want to stand on what God is really saying. And we start to ask questions. God, did you really say this? And trust me, most of the world is going to come along and say, not really. It's antiquated. It's wrong. It's off. It needs a new kind of application. That's the Old Testament God. Oh, I know what it is. Men wrote the Bible. That's the problem. God's really not capable. He's God. But he's not capable to actually speak to us from heaven. He's stuck. Because God can't be real with his right. I mean, really? God must be living in the past or in the heavenly future with all these commandments and calls the holiest. I want to, you know, I want to be angry with somebody. I want to put my finger in somebody's face, right? I want to tell them off. I want to give them a piece of my mind. I want to murder some folks. And God says, what love, man, please. This can't be real. I remember watching... Uh, one of the most interesting scenes in Spike Lee's movie, Malcolm X. The character Malcolm X, who, who's a black Muslim who's played by Denzel Washington, waits on Sundays outside of churches as people are coming out. And as they leave, says, y'all been in church all day, and look, you got out, no heaven out here. Ain't nothing changed. Look at y'all dressed up, preaching, sweating, ain't nothing going on. And saying this to African-American folk whose lives are already a struggle and oppression, they go and they have a good time at church and they come out and he says, ain't no heaven out here. And as much as I agree with active changes for social justice, we are still called to stand on God's word to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It just sounds so wrong. We could be changing the world and God telling us to come together and worship. It doesn't seem right. Why do it? You're wasting your time. You could do something else with two hours of your day. That would help the world. James says, stand. Stand right there. And James picks up on this rebellion that is likely to take place in us as we try to stand for what God has said in a very challenging world of circumstances. Look with me at verse 9 again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door to grumble. God don't like grumbling, y'all. I like what one commentary said, we should not let complaining about our circumstances to, with, and by others, or blaming or complaining about each other to replace us standing on and holding on and sharing the word of God as more true than anything we feel and take what we feel to make it a new theology of living. 
Let me tell you, unfortunately, naturally, we in our world are prolific experts in grumbling and complaining about what is not working out or lining up with God, what God supposedly said and how the Bible can be so wrong. They ain't read one word of the Bible, but they just know it's wrong. Never been to a Bible study longer than one time, but they know it's wrong. It's not lining up with God said or, 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 or when he should do it or, or we think he should or how we think he should. And we are prolific prosecutors and blaming each other and knowing all the mess up people who are knowing all the, no, who, who are responsible, excuse me, for all the wrong we're experiencing. This policy and this politician and this warlord and this conspiracy. And we begin to live on a platform of social justice and change and healing with our phones in hand, videoing everything we can. Blaming and capturing, captivating people with our pain instead of a platform that says, this is what God says about my pain. This is what God says about our world. This is how God's called me to act in this world. This is how we should respond to our enemies and his enemies. And James says we should not grumble. We should not let the world around us, intellectual or not, I don't care how smart you are, right? Make us distrust the word of God because the judge is at the door. Again, Jesus is coming, which means this. He will judge us and this world according to what he says and not what everybody thinks or feels. Not our personal complaints and blaming and poutings and viewpoints which is scary and welcome news, right? Scary because God doesn't like grumblers, those who sour or marginalize or badmouth his word. And also what? That, that the judge is going to deal with all the people who are unjustly and wronging, li wrongly living and treating you in the world with grumbling, violence, and hatred so you and I can stand on the word as the story. I didn't say a story. I said the story. We had this conversation the other day in the office, and, you know, we, we, we get it in. Me and Connor and Jacob and John and Charles and Aaron, we be getting it in, man. Especially on Mondays. I'm real crazy on Mondays. After doing this thing on Sunday, I have all kind of craziness to throw it down. They good, though. They good. We were saying, you know... It's kind of funny and hard to talk to people when you're really talking Christianity. Because when I talk to you about the Lord, let, let me just break it open for y'all how I really feel. No, 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 see, messed up. How I really believe what the word is saying. So you're talking to people and they're like, well, you know, I believe this and, and my God's this and your God's this. You know what Christianity says? My God is your God. You just being disobedient. I serve the Lord of Lords. You don't own anything. See, when we enter the room, we as believers believe that there is only one true and living, the God, the Lord, the King, the Savior, the Redeemer, not any indefinite article that we see in Scripture. And nobody, and I, mean, it, it, I don't care, okay, great belief, great smart theory you have. When we come in a room, we believe that our Lord is God. 
That's the word of the Lord. It's hard to stand in a world like that. I'm sorry, my God is not tolerant of other gods. Okay, look, I might be tolerant because I want to get along and I don't like to make people mad. I like to get along with everybody and I try my best. My God doesn't like getting along with other gods. He don't get along with other belief systems. He has a no tolerance, I am the Lord policy. And anyone who grumbles against him or says, you got to come down a couple notches, God, for my belief, the judge is standing at the door and we believe he's going to come back and deal with that unbelief and deal with you. I ain't got nothing to do with that. Scripture calls us to stand in a world with what I just said sounds incredibly crazy. Don't you realize I'm a lunatic for saying that? Somebody was telling me, I can't remember who it was, that now they're starting to call like belief like that is now a mental disorder. Like they might put it in the mental disorder book. What's that thing called? The DSM something or another? Like to believe like we believe is now going to be crazy. Stand. Stand. You know, I'm not joking about midweek when I say come. You know, I used to be kind of like, I don't want to offend Christians and I don't want to push them too hard because then they'll feel sad and legalistic. No, man, let me tell you, you, you got to get your self. Somewhere where you can know what you really believe. Y'all don't know what you believe. Not really. We really don't know what the Word of God says. You know what? We go with kind of like, I can't get into it, but we kind of go with that millennial, moralistic, what, therapeutic, deistic God crap where you kind of like just a good person and you kind of make Christianity feel safe for everybody and yourself and it's all just personal. God didn't really come to take over the world. Yeah, he did. He did. We didn't come to fit in. We came to take over in Jesus' name. I mean, I, the judge is standing at the door. We stand on what is true. And so when I talk about coming to midweek, think about the three groups we have. God is blank. Right? Do you know what to put in that blank? Beside a couple of things, he's nice, he's good. If you can only come up with nice and good, you need to come to class. Then we got keeping marriage real. Oh, my goodness, y'all. Can we talk about marriage and its definition in the world today? If two people love each other and they're monogamous, that ain't what Scripture said. Yeah. If you only got two things to define it, you're in trouble. Okay, come to the class. Then we got the one about race and our children in this generation. Oh, I don't even have to say anything. Just turn on the news and hit the little videos, people getting shot in the back and all that kind of stuff and race issues. Look. Do y'all know really what God says? You can't stand. You will move around. You will be shifted by every wind and doctrine. The next person comes in, the strongest personality will win. The one who wins will win, right? And you won't know what to believe. He says, we need to get God's story, the story, and our story straight because we live in a crooked and twisting world. And the Lord has given us his word, his truth as a story that we are sticking to and sticks to. But not only are we called to stand, but to stay. I'll close with this one. Look at verse 11. 
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word there is to be steadfast, to stay, to remain. And the example James gives us this time is Job, one of the most obedient men who ever lived. And some of you know the story of how God agreed to, to test Job's faith to in, in him by, by letting evil and Satan kill his whole family, make him lose all his wealth, suffer bad health and lose his friends. And though Job, get, Job excuse me, gets shaky and trusts in God and has to be set straight, and though he questions why God, he never loses his faith or curses God in the middle of extreme hardship. And he stays and lets God set him straight. And so like Job, James is calling us to stay not only in the hardship, but because of the hardship and stay for a taste of God's goodness. The people James is ministering to are suffering. And I believe after a while, some Christians began to leave the faith or a good part of the faith, not just in their Christian title. They may have continued to be Christians, but, but more so in their behavior. Excuse me. God's people were running away from their faith, looking for better shelter in the storm of life, right? Looking for a better place, a better philosophy, right? A, a modified Christianity that would toughen them up against the disappointments and problems in this world. I mean, folks were tired of waiting and standing around while the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And, and, and the things they struggled with seemed to be getting no better. And maybe for you. It isn't leaving the church or running from Jesus, but running from giving what you should in your relationships. Maybe a relationship that's hard with a child or boyfriend or mother or husband or wife or with a job or financial situation, or you've given up fighting a certain addiction, right? You stopped going to your support group and looking for help or said no more counseling for this or that, and you just want to check out for where God has put you and called you not to leave it, but not give or hope or trust God in it anymore. Many of us have decided to run away emotionally and spiritually and mentally. Your body is there, but the suffering and pain is so bad that your soul is gone. And James is calling us to stay, to, to remain present with and for God in the hardship, but most or so because of the hardship. You know what the story of Job was really about? Not Job's faithfulness and staying true to God and unbelievable loss and suffering when, it seemed, when he seemed to do everything right, but about God's faithfulness to be a hiding place for Job when he went through hard times. When Satan approached Job about God, about taking off Job's stuff, God knew that he, if he were in Job's life, Job would survive that he would come through and grow through and be redeemed through and kept and brought through the hardship because as Job stayed and was kept by the Lord, he would not fail or fall. People, stay because there is hardship in your life. Don't run away because there's hardship in your life. Don't run away from the Lord because things are hard. Stay with the Lord because things are hard. I'm not playing a game with y'all. 
I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that what you have or are or will go through is not hard. I'm not going to tell you that today for sure, although it could be that Jesus is coming back and everything's going to be right. But I can be sure that you will and are living in broken circumstances with broken people in a messed up world until he does come back. And that he is still the only place to be when there is no safe place. When there is no safe place in this world as long as there is a world with you living in it. Hardship and disappointment and fear will find you. But let it find you hidden and remaining and kept by the Lord. I'm asking for more than words here as James commands us. Stay is demanding that we bring our souls to it. Now hear me now. Our last hope in it. We entrust that last bit of all of who we are and our humanity to him. The fragileness of your fears and your relationships and your marriage. Stay in God's hand, which means in his word, in his care, in his prayer, in his church with desperate hope. Don't give up. Come back in for your hardship. Worship again. Cry again. Hope again and again. An active relationship with the Lord is the place you can most confidently come when you know there's going to be hardship. Look at the end of verse 11. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Those who stay because of their hardship with the Lord can and will taste the compassion and mercy of God. You know what God's purpose for you to stand with and behind and in him and trust him to wait to stand in the hardship so that you and I can taste and see and experience his goodness in a place we can't outside of being in him in our hardship. while ago, Pastor Tim Keller, he, he preached a sermon I heard a while back where he illustrated God's mercy. Some of you may have heard it, like having a bad dream to then wake up to the truth. And the truth, at, truth after the bad dream is better than it was before the dream. What do I mean? I've had dreams where like maybe my kids had died in the dream or I couldn't get to them. Now, get this. These are the same kids that were getting on my nerves. The kids I didn't want around me, and I wanted just to have them go to sleep. Get away. I tell my kids after a certain time, it's dangerous for kids to still be up. <laughs> I'm like, after you've told them like 20 times, go to bed, go to bed, lay down, don't come out your room, I just look at them, and I don't even say go to bed. I'm just like, okay, it is dangerous for you. I'm tired. I don't want to see no kids. I, I don't want to get no water for nobody. I... Danger. But then you have a dream like something happened to them real bad. And then you wake up the next morning. Man, there have been times I'd run down that hall and just seeing them okay. You go and you hug them and you love them and you have new life and new hope and new love for them, 
and all the mess and hardship and struggle and daddy, can I get some water and can I go to the bathroom again? That stuff just doesn't matter as much anymore. James says here that the purpose of God is in our hardships is that as we wait, stand and stay in the bad temporal experience of life's hardship, that we would taste heaven's power and compassion anew in a way we couldn't or can't if we weren't standing with him through the temporal bad dreams and nightmares that life brings you. Where is the best tasting place of the Lord? Scripture says it's in the hardship as you stand and stay in his hand. That's where it is. I know it's an irony to everything you may have heard in modern day Christianity. It is not in winning. It, the, the compassionate mercy of God that comes from heaven that tastes like nothing else you could ever experience. It is not in being successful. It's in being broken and having the only place in person you can trust in until their second coming is Jesus Christ. This was a sermon I really didn't want to preach. But I must tell you the good news of God's compassion and mercy in Christ for you. Run to him again. Come on back. Wait. Stay. Stand. The Lord wants to give you something good and gracious and glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to walk away from so much in our life. We're sitting down right here saying we already tried. We did it all. Think about some things in my own life, Lord. It seems like I've done it all. Tired of waiting. Tired of hurting. Lord, help us to look at the work you are doing. Rain down on us, Lord, compassion and mercy and the gifts of grace necessary for us to keep waiting, for us to keep standing, for us to keep staying in you. Lord, I pray for the community here, Lord. I pray that the grace of community, the word, being with each other, praying for one another, Lord, the grace of the Lord's Supper, the grace of worshiping today, that those things would help deliver the reign of God's grace and mercy that we need so badly until Christ comes back. This we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.